Morning, Redemption. This is uh, in Arizona what we call, well, in Phoenix, what we call a snow day. So I'm, I'm really proud of you guys for battling through and making it ch uh, to church um, this morning. I have to do this. I know it's cheesy. I do it every year. I just, I'm always interested. So let's hear it for the LA Rams. Demons. All right, let's hear it for the, uh, the, the New England Patriots. Wow, I'm getting booze. Now, let's hear from the people who just don't care. Love that. Yes. Okay. My Sunday is complete now, I'm telling you. I'm, standing, I'm sitting there listening to Steve talk about giving and toward the end, you'll notice he said, uh, you need to make a comprehensive analysis. If you know Steve Wheeler, that is his spiritual gift, making a comprehensive, a comprehensive analysis of everything. He can't buy toothpaste without a comprehensive analysis. So, you know, look it over, you'll be fine. So, um, anyway, uh, a, couple, a couple more things before we get started. Uh, yesterday morning... We had Tom's memorial service at Scottsdale Bible. And again, just a shout out to Scottsdale Bible for everything they did in the midst of that. They paid for everything. They took care of everything. It was absolutely unbelievable. More than 2,000 people were there. It was probably the, the greatest worship experience that I've ever experienced uh, in my life. Uh, Tom was honored. Christ was exalted. Uh, it was just a really good time. If you... Uh, missed it, there is actually a place you can go and watch the video. Now, I understand this was a two-hour memorial service, but I will tell you, experiencing it, there was never even a second when you weren't engaged and on the edge of your seat. And you might be crying, you might be laughing, you might be just listening, but there was, there was not a single down moment in that entire time. And if you're thinking, gee whiz, two hours, that's, that's a long time, just consider this. If you're an Office fan, and I hope you are, that's only five episodes. Just don't watch five episodes on Netflix, and you'll be able to get through um, the whole service. It, it, it's really, really worth it, from the music to um, uh, just everything else. It was, it was really good. So let's dive in to what we're doing uh, this morning. Uh, I want to review the series just a little bit. We have taken this book from Paul Miller. We've, we've appropriated his, the title of his book, uh, love Walked Among Us, and, and we're not doing every chapter, and we're not preaching the book. Uh, we're using the book as a resource in order for us to be able to uh, preach our way through uh, some times in the New Testament where Jesus has a really deep encounter with somebody or a group of people, and we can learn something about Jesus' character, primarily his love, but we can learn different things about the character of Jesus so that we might begin to look ourselves more like Jesus and live more like Jesus. Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 8, that we are in the process of being conformed to the image of God's Son, and, and, and we believe that this is a, a really big part of it. And, and we're, we're still doing what redemption is famous for, which is exegetical preaching. We're just not working our way through an entire book during this series. We're looking very closely at the text of each of these various narratives of Jesus. And so far, I will tell you, it's, it's been convicting for me in a really good way. Uh, again, just you, you never get 
so old that you can't learn more about who Jesus is and how the Spirit can and should be working uh, in your life. Um, and we'd look at uh, what I would argue is a fairly famous uh, passage here. It's, it's short, it's pithy, it's from the book of Mark. Gospel of Mark is very, uh, has, uses an economy of words. Uh, it's really short, but uh, I think you might be surprised, only six verses, how much we're able to pull out of this, not only from the context of what's going on uh, in the passage, in the event, but also in terms of application uh, to us. And one of the things that I think is interesting about this particular passage is it's early in the Gospel of Mark, it's the beginning of chapter 3, and already by the end of this little story in verse 6, we see that the professional religious person's uh, plot to kill Jesus begins to firmly take shape. They, they, it, it doesn't take them long to decide that they want to uh, get rid of Jesus. And one of the things that I think that we should also reckon with um, from this passage is how Jesus so willingly and boldly walked right into this situation. He knew what he was walking into, and he joyfully and gladly walked into this event, this event of hostility, of controversy, of discomfort and conflict. He knew this was going to be uh, difficult, and he boldly walked right in. So again, uh, my pitch on Having a Bible for this series, uh, the reason is because we won't always keep the verses on the screens and we're going to be constantly saying, now look at this verse, look at this uh, little section, look at this clause, look back, look back. So whether it's a phone or a Bible, it'd be really helpful to, for you to have your Bibles out. So uh, again, let's read verses 1 and 2. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So lots of context here. Uh, first of all, the stakes are much higher here in terms of where Jesus is ministering and, and teaching and, and healing. He's not just doing this uh, next to the Sea of Galilee. He's not doing this on a road somewhere. He's now in a synagogue. He's, he's on the perps territory, the professional religious people. Uh, it's on a Sabbath, we learn again. So there's all this tension surrounding what's going on with Jesus. And it ends up being kind of in your face in terms of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who are there. And, and this is part of why there's this problem, this growing tension between uh, this group of people and, and Jesus. And we're told that this man who's there has a <clears throat> withered hand or a shriveled hand. You, you, different translations use the, the different words, but it really means the same thing. Uh, what we're being told about this man is that he has a hand that is complete, you're, he's completely unable to use it, and it's, it's uh, deformed in such a way that he has it completely withdrawn and hidden. He, the way he wears his clothes, the way he walks, the way he postures himself, he's always going to be hiding and protecting this hand so that uh, nobody can see it. And the word that is translated there literally means diseased and dried up. So he has a diseased and dried up hand. I mean, this is really tough stuff here. And you, could, you can imagine, uh, first of all, how self-conscious this man is, but also how much he would really like to have a, a, a healthy hand back. And then you look at verse 2, it says, some of them were looking for a reason to 
accuse him. The sum of them were primarily the Pharisees, the, the religious professionals who were so threatened by Jesus. They were threatened by his love. They were threatened by his compassion. They were threatened by his presence. Just being in the same room with Jesus, they were threatened. They were threatened by his ministry and they were threatened by his teaching because most of what he was doing was pushing against their structures of power and authority. And they didn't realize, this is the saddest part for the professional religious people, they didn't realize just how much they needed Jesus as well as those who really understand how much they need Jesus. People who know that they are lacking and falling short. They need Jesus just as much as, as any of those other people. And then you might even ask the question, why so early in the God? Why are they already looking for a reason to accuse Jesus? This seems really early in his public ministry. Well, we need to understand that especially in the book of Mark, which moves very fast, already by this time in chapters 1 and 2, we see several examples of why the, the perps would be unhappy with Jesus and would like to, to destroy him. For instance, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we see that Jesus publicly proclaims and declares that somebody's sins are forgiven. Now, for a, a, a Jewish religious professional, only God can forgive sins, and therefore, if anybody other than God forgives sins, they are what's known as a blasphemer, which makes them a criminal, and they are subject to charges, indictment, and punishment, possibly even execution. So he's now considered already a criminal. Now, the irony, of course, is that he is God and he has the authority to forgive sin, but they don't understand that. So, I, again, I think goofy things, I get that, and you have to endure them if you're a part of this church. But, again, if you're an, are you, anybody an Office fan here? You like The Office? Okay, so I, I've been through The Office maybe three times, so you understand I have a lot of time to waste. But at any rate... Um, and if you're not an Office fan, we're praying for you so that, you know, the light will open for you. But it, those of you that are Office fans, remember that episode when um, Michael's beginning to realize that he's running out of money because of Jan. And, and Oscar comes in and does all the grass for him and says, you're in real trouble. And, and, and he says, Michael, I think you're going to have to declare bankruptcy. And what does Michael do? He walks out into the office and he says, I declare bankruptcy. And Oscar's like, no, you got to fill out some papers, you got to take it to court, all that. Okay, here you go. Jesus can simply declare that somebody's forgiven. And understand, what he's forgiving us for is, as Josh explained last week, a type of debt. We have a debt to God. Jesus declares that that bankruptcy generated by our sin is now forgiven. He can do what Michael Scott would like to do with his financial situation, but can't. So he's already, he's already blasphemed. He's also already aligned himself with sinners by dining with tax collectors and other undesirables, for instance, uh, women of the city. We see that in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2. And he says, listen, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And what he means there, I have not come to call the righteous. He's not saying that anybody is righteous apart from him. He's not saying that. He's saying, I have not come to call the people who are self-righteous, the people who believe that they're righteous in themselves. 
And that's anybody who doesn't believe in, in Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I'm fine. I'm a good and moral person. Everything's going to work out. I'm going to make the PGA cut in, in heaven, and, and, and I'm going to get in. And the answer is no. Nobody is self. He says only people who, here you go, understand that they are lacking, that understand that they fall short. Again, I I think these things, you go to the doctor's office, wouldn't it be weird if there was a doctor who had a practice where nobody who ever had an illness or a physical ailment whatsoever ever went to see this doctor? This doctor's office was just filled with perfectly healthy people just being affirmed in their health. That wouldn't make any sense. That's why Jesus uses that metaphor. And yesterday morning at the memorial service, I was reminded of, of something that Tom used to say all the time. And this is what Jesus is getting at right here. Uh, he, he says, the main problem with people, the main problem with you and I, and listen, if you're a Christ follower and you think you have this all figured out, we still need to hear this. The, I need to hear this. The, the main problem with you and I is that we don't descend low enough in our understanding of how sinful we are and we do not ascend high enough in understanding just how much we need God. Our vision of, uh, of ourselves is way too high, and our vision of God is way too low. And we like it that way because once we've done this, now we don't feel like we need God anymore. We don't feel like we need Jesus. John the Baptist, I think one of the most profound things written in Scripture in John chapter 3, he looks at Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then he says, He must increase and I must decrease. It's not a question of worthiness. It's not a question of shame. It's a question of understanding. We need Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, These people recognize that they need me, the tax collectors and the undesirables. And then the third thing we can see is that he disrespected the perps. Um, he dis disrespected them in all these different ways that they uh, observed their religious practices. He, he, he didn't practice fasting the way they did it. He would pick grain on the Sabbath. His teachings were, were different than, than what the perps were teaching and things that they had not uh, considered. And now this incident in particular is again challenging all the religious rules about an important part of Judaism. It's the Sabbath. Now, Jesus has a different idea than the perps about the Sabbath. Uh, he, he said this about the Sabbath. He said, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. For man. We need to understand. So as human beings, the Sabbath is not our God. The, the Sabbath isn't the end goal. God loves us and blessed us so he gave us the Sabbath to serve us, to serve human beings. The Sabbath God made for us. And oh, by the way, God needed the Sabbath as well. Don't you think we would need it? So he's saying it's a gift. It's not something to build a, a bunch of faulty rules around. Uh, Tim Keller writes this, the author and pastor. Both the legalistic rule manager and the one who is free in Christ will desire to keep the Sabbath. But one will do it out of grinding, grudging duty, thus making it a burden, and the other out of joyful delight, recognizing the Sabbath as the great gift it is from God. So Jesus, by this time, is already making a ton of waves, yet his wave-making is, 
is really uh, done out of this radical, selfless, sacrificial love rarely before experienced in their context and frankly, rarely experienced in our context as well. That's why we have trouble recognizing it and that's why it disorients us and makes us uncomfortable. Radical love will always disorient. Haven't you ever looked at the way somebody is loving somebody radically, somebody that you would say is unlovable, and yet they love them radically, and you're disoriented and confused by that? Jesus' love is going to disorient. It's hard for us to get our arms around this. And generally speaking, Sabbath observance was guided by the idea that if you could do something important but do it either before or after the Sabbath with no negative consequences, then you should do it before or after the Sabbath. But this wasn't one of those things. This man with the hand was an issue of restoration, and God is in the business of restoration. God is not in the business of, of shaming God is in the business of recognizing certainly that we're guilty, but not shaming, and he's in the business of restoring us to that which he had planned for us from the very beginning. And so Jesus is looking at this and looking at the hardness of the hearts of the perps and, 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 and saying, why don't you want to help restore this man? In fact, your scriptures call for you to have a heart to restore this man. So you can start to see why Jesus is a little bit angry with them. And so he wades in, verses 3 and 4. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And Jesus said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? That word harm there could be translated also as evil. Is it lawful to do good or evil? Is it lawful to do uh, good on the Sabbath? or to harm, to save a life, or to kill, but they were silent. So first, Jesus turns to the man, he says, stand up in front of everyone. That's probably going to be a little disconcerting to this guy who would prefer not to ever be noticed because of his hand. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And Jesus asks, I think, a pretty simple question, but it's a turn the tables kind of question. They were trying to trap him, and now his question very simply traps them and we know that because the last part of verse 4 says but they were silent and their silence indicts them they don't have any way of answering they have no comeback they've suddenly realized that they're in the debate they're in a debate with the master debater there's no way that they're going to be able to win this argument they know that answering either way is going to condemn them if they say, well, we must do good on the Sabbath, then there's no controversy, and they affirm Jesus. And by the way, ironically, they also affirm the, scripture, the very scriptures that they claim that they are upholding. But if they say, no, we mustn't do, do good, then, of course, they violate what they believe. Uh, everything uh, is everything that God stands for and the spirit of their holy scriptures. Because the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Mosaic Law, is quite clear if you see a fellow human being in trouble you are to help them you are to help them and of course jesus is going to restore his hand jesus is setting them up he's going to restore their hand and again i get these crazy ideas i think of this in a contemporary way i think and and i just it's not in the text but i wonder if jesus said or was thinking you know guys in a couple of years i'm going to walk out of a tomb 
this is just a hand. This is no big deal. Why are we getting in such a snit about this? It's just a hand. And I don't want you to stop and consider. Jesus restores rather than observes. Jesus restores. He wades in. He acts rather than just observing. So many of us are so good at observing. And then, of course, offering helpful comments about that which we are not participating in, but we are observing. There's going to be a ton of that going on this afternoon, starting at about 4.20. Most of us have never played a lick of professional or even college football, but we're going to be experts about what's going on on that field. And we're going to be watching it on TV. We aren't even going to be there, okay? See, see, most of us aren't really all that interested in restoring. We talk about it, and the reason is because restoring takes so much effort and work, and time, and resources. I get it. It's hard. Restoring calls us to wade in. Restoring calls us to risk. We're not that interested in risking. And we also see another problem here with religion. We see a problem here with religion, and we see a misunderstanding of God's heart and spirit here. This healing would not have violated the biblical Sabbath as articulated in the Mosaic Law, but rather it was going to violate the Pharisees' constructed rules of Sabbath observance. Uh, you may not know this, but there's the Mosaic Law, which is in our Bible, okay? But then uh, thousands of years ago, the ancient Jewish priests and scribes and lawyers and, and professional religious people, they looked at those rules in their holy scriptures and decided that those rules needed a lot more explanation and clarification and additional rules that would help you to keep the original rules that were in the Mosaic Law. So they have all of these other ancient writings that are helping to explain and define and keep you on the straight and narrow for those Rules. Have you ever noticed how rules always beget more rules? You ever seen that work in the marketplace? I, I did. It's one of the things that used to frustrate me about being in the marketplace, to be honest with you. You, you, get, a, you get an email or a memo about a brand new rule. And, and you know, everybody starts to get, pretty soon you see people kind of walking around with this confused look on their face with the new rule in their hand because it wasn't explained well and maybe the rule didn't take into consideration all these other external factors and then within hours of course the people that gave you the new rule have now sent you three or four new memos explaining the rule more uh, more fully and giving you other rules to help you to keep that rule and now you got to start collecting and here you go within a month you've got a three ring binder on this one one new rule, and you need to know it all. On the first day of every class at Paradise Valley Community College, I read through the syllabus, and we're required to put a statement in there that says that the students are required as students of the school to know everything that is in the handbook for students, the rules and regulations for students, and the class um, availability uh, document that they put out. I added it up once. It's 92 pages worth of stuff that you would never read. There's nobody that would ever read this. But it's just rule after rule after rule. When I was in the marketplace, I had this really goofy, I, 
I was told several times. This goofy notion and desire that everyone would just would somehow just do what was right. You guys are laughing at me. You guys think I'm I know. I just had this idea. You know, why why would you walk by that that big gulp garbage on the ground six times and not just pick it up and throw away? Why would you see a customer wandering around obviously confused and lost and not go over there and try to help them? Why don't you just, why can't we just do what's right? And I think there's a word that we could use to encapsulate this goofy idea of let's all just do what's right. And it's a biblical word and it's a word that Jesus lived his life and gave his life for. It's called grace. It's called grace. It's, it's being the one who's going to make up the difference between what's happening and what needs to happen, even though it may not necessarily be your responsibility. It may not necessarily be your department. And, and, and that's what it, it's grace. But man, grace is so, it's so controversial and disorienting. Not when we're on the receiving end, right? It's not controversial or disorienting when we're on the receiving end of grace. But in most other situations, I've found that grace is very troubling to us. I've said this before, and it really seems to rile people, and I don't say it because I want to rile people. I don't like riling people. I'm, I'm into affirmation and all that stuff. But I believe the reason that it riles people is because it's so true of each and every one of us, and Jesus pushes hard against it. You and I love grace when it's for us, but what we want for everybody else is not grace, but what? Justice. Grace for us, justice for everyone else. Now, in all of the social sciences and all of their bodies of research for the last several decades, they, they have come up with something that they call this. It's called the self-serving bias. And we all live by it, the self-serving bias. And they don't realize how theological it is. But it is. The self-serving bias says we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We always make, are able to make excuses and blame others when we do something wrong. And we're always able to build ourselves up and talk about how great we are when we do something right. But when it comes to somebody else doing right, we'll find a reason why they lucked out and did right. Or when they do something wrong, we just start piling on to them. That's just the way we are. We don't necessarily say it out loud, but we're constantly thinking that. And this is the reason why, frankly, I, I, I'm... I'm always a little suspicious of any justice movement and why I'm always a little bit slow about joining in to any justice movement. Because in the midst of that movement, I want to know, is there grace and humility? Is this justice movement being led in a way that Christ would want it led? And that would be from a position of humility, from a position of compassion, and from a position of grace. If the justice is just about hammering somebody else so that you can feel good about yourself and, and improve your likes uh, and your retweets and your reposts on social media, I'm really not that interested because all that is is attention-seeking and it's punitive and it's not humble or graceful. And I am for justice, man. You need, I, I am for justice. And I think the gospel leads us into justice situations, and it should. I, I, I work in justice situations in the Department of Corrections all the time. 
I work in justice situations in academia. I work in justice situations with the working poor. My justice situations may not be your justice situations, and that's good. That's why we are the body of Christ, and I'm all for justice. But we need to be careful about how we're practicing it. Are we representing how Jesus would do it? Anyway, Jesus' anger at the perps is not born of vengeance or pride or arrogance or attention-seeking or a desire to punish or self-righteousness. It's born out of grace and compassion and humility, and that's what we would call honest anger. The title of this message is Honest Anger. That's honest anger. And here's one other challenge we found. When we get knee-deep into justice issues, which are often good, and, and we get good and angry about it, and we should, okay, fine, but rarely, rarely does it seem like our anger is also accompanied by grief and mourning and empathy. Not just for the one that the injustice is being perpetrated against, but also for the one that is perpetrating the injustice. Do you understand that God loves them too and wants to see them redeemed? We're going to see in the next verse, Jesus grieves for the ones who are doing this to the man and to him. He grieves for them. He feels bad for them. He wants them to see the truth of who he is and his redemption just as much as the people who know who he is and realize how much they need it. Jesus gets angry at the Pharisees, but it isn't just anger. He grieves for them. Do we grieve? Do we grieve on both sides of that coin? Verses 5 and 6. And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So here you go. And he says, come up here, and now stretch out your hand. This is the last thing this guy wants to do. Stand up in front of everybody and let's see that diseased hand. Uh, love often does things that it, at first would appear cruel, especially to people on the outside looking in. And we don't want to appear cruel, but love will often do that. He doesn't want to stick out his hand for everybody to gawk at him. It's similar to that first week when Cody talked about the widow at Nain and, and Jesus just walks up to uh, her her son's death basket, and he's dead, and Jesus says, rise, get up. I mean, that just seems kind of, could you imagine going to a memorial service, a funeral, and somebody doing that in the memorial service or the funeral? That would just seem cruel to those who are there. Jesus boldly and loudly does these things. But genuine love is risky. Genuine love is risky. It really is. I, I even think about people getting married, you know. Oh, I'm sure he's the right one. I'm sure she's the right one. You're still taking a risk. <laughs> Cynical and happy laughter there. <laughs> it, it's going to be risky. You're talking about committing decades to, to a life with somebody who's going to change, and you're going to change. It's uncomfortable, but maybe we should get more comfortable with the fact that genuine love 
is, is truly risky. The problem is that you and I just want guarantees for everything, including love. We want guarantees. And we really don't want to exert ourselves. Again, research shows that we live in a culture that's known as a low-ambiguity-tolerant culture. That means that we hate uncertainty. We absolutely hate uncertainty. Well, you know, if you wait on every decision in your life, if you wait until you're 100% sure, you're never going to do anything. You're making a decision by not deciding. And And a key to understanding here, I think this is really important, The offense that Jesus takes to the Pharisees is not their desire to be right with God. He's not offended by that. Their intent, their motivation is is correct, but rather he's upset and offended by their self-righteousness, their self-exaltation, and their lack of mercy. The result is that this is one of the few times in the Gospels that it is recorded that Jesus is angry. But he's angry with very good reason. He's discerningly angry. He's careful about why he gets angry. I've talked to people and I've read essays by people who say, it doesn't seem right that Jesus got angry here. It seems unholy of Jesus that he got angry. I talk to a lot of people who really are disturbed by the fact that he goes uh, in a couple of different places in, in Scripture. It's recorded that he goes into the temple and turns over the, the money changers' tables and he, and he whips around that whip. People are really disturbed by that. But genuine love does get angry. Genuine love gets angry. It gets angry at sin. But our problem as human beings is that we struggle with why we get angry, especially today. I don't see how anyone can deny that we live today in a time when most people are now trained and conditioned by our culture, by our Um, teaching institutions even, by social media. We're trained and conditioned to be angry first about anything and everything, and we're even walking around looking for reasons and ways to be angry. Uh, The sociologist and researcher Brene Brown says that we live in something now called the cruelty culture. The cruelty culture. Sam Biddle, who's a journalist who has experienced this himself, he says, we live in the culture of easy rage. And many other commentators have, have asserted that we live in the age of rage. I wonder how historians will talk about our era someday, the age of rage. It, it, it's gone so far that many people find identity in their anger. I run into this occasionally. They're proud of their anger, and they believe their anger defines them, and it makes them a better person than, than others. Anger is now equated with self-righteousness. It's like a meter as to how righteous you might think you are. Well, here you go. Think about this. We, just, we need to remember, if everything is worth getting angry about, then what's the next line? Nothing is worth getting angry about, right? Um, we're dog people. We have dogs. We have three of them. How many, how many of you are dog people? This is not to shame the cat people. I'm just wondering, okay? Dog people, Okay. So now, let me, of you dog people, let me ask this question. How many of you have what we call barking dogs? They just bark at everything. Jackie and I call it, yeah, there you go. Jackie and I call it, they, they're barking at air. They're sitting there perfectly placid and happy, and all of a sudden, row, row, row! <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. We'll be sitting watching The Office on Netflix, 
And the three of them out of nowhere jump up, start barking. It's dog-style yelling and screaming. Run out the doggy door, and it's just filling the neighborhood. Just over and over. They'll, in a 22-minute episode of The Office, they'll do that 15 times. It's, then they'll come back, lay down, boom, they're right back out. Okay, here you go. If your dog... Someday, our dogs are going to bark at something that we really need to take an interest in, and we're just going to be sitting on the couch watching Michael Scott. <laughs> we're not going to get up. We're not going to realize that our house is being invaded. You understand the point I'm getting at? If you're constantly angry, and if your first flinch is anger at all of this stuff, if you sit down at dinner, and boom, you're just looking for that little trigger point to start getting angry and start to tell everybody how angry you are, do you understand that sooner or later people are going to quit taking you seriously, and it's probably going to be sooner rather than later? You see, you and I, we could learn so much from Jesus about anger and grace. He's not angry at the drop of a hat. He's not angry all the time. He's discerning about anger. Tim Keller says this, Jesus doesn't care so much about your position as he does your posture. He doesn't care if you're a Republican or Democrat, but how are you engaging? That's the important thing. And, 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 we should never use Jesus' righteous anger to justify our hasty and unrighteous anger. Jesus' anger is completely different than ours, I found. At least, at least mine. Think about this. My anger mostly moves me away from people and divides and creates factions. And yours probably does too. Jesus' anger tends to start moving people together in a good way. And verse 6, of course, is where they begin the plot to kill them. The Pharisees, the Pharisees are so upset that they do something totally unheard of in their context. They take up with the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? I'll get to that. The Pharisees, though, are what you and I might call today nationalists. Everything was about the greatness of Israel. But they were living under the oppressive yoke of the Roman Empire. And they, the Pharisees, hated, hated everything about Rome. But... They found that they hated Jesus even more than they hated Rome. So how do we know that they hated Jesus more than they hated Rome? Because the Herodians were Jews who had agreed to work with the family of Herod, a Jewish family that had sold out to the Romans in order to gain wealth. Now here you go. They were Jews who were working with the Nazis in order to pad their pocketbook. And the Pharisees were willing, in the instance of getting rid of Jesus, to work with these sellouts. That's how angry and how much they hated Jesus. And not only were the Pharisees willing to join their sellout enemies, but they were willing to violate the sixth and the ninth commandments, their own commandments on murder and false witness, in order to uphold their idea, not God's idea, of the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath. It's just, when you get deep into this, you realize just how goofy this was and really how easy it was for Jesus to stand up and, and take a stand in this case. And I think this passage and Jesus' character in this event expose a truth that helps us to understand the gospel so much more today. The Pharisees are religious fanatics, and Jesus is a grace fanatic. And here's the main difference in those two things. Religion is all about what you and I must do in order to clean us up and make ourselves worthy to, for God 
to show us value and to show us favor. It's all about us making ourselves worthy enough. How many of us, you're gonna, some of you are going to have to dig deep and think deeply about this. How many of you truly, when you get past your facade, you don't feel worthy? You don't feel worthy in your family. You don't feel worthy at work. You don't feel worthy around your friends. You just don't feel worthy. And you're, you're working on that self-improvement project to make yourself worthy. That's the way we think of God when it comes to religion. we got to work ourselves so that we're worthy enough for him. Jesus is not about what we must do. It's all about what we can't do. We can't make ourselves worthy enough for God. Instead, God already sees us as worthy. So worthy that he sent his son to the cross to sacrifice his son so that we might have redemption, so that we don't have to go on a self-improvement project in order to get God's attention. He's already given us his attention. And that word sacrifice, I'm a word nerd, the etymology of the word sacrifice literally means that which is sacred. Do you understand that when Jesus went to the cross, it's God the Father saying, I find you sacred. Now, he's not going to leave us where we are. That's one of the joys of the gospel is that he takes us somewhere. But we don't have to clean up or make ourselves worthy before we come to him. That is what's so beautiful about this. Where does your worthiness come from? Does it come from the opinions of others? Or does it come from the opinion of the one that really counts? And he says, you're worthy enough that I sent my son to die for you. It's in our weakness that we can know God, not in our power. It's in our weakness. It's when we understand that we need him. And that's a clear picture of the cross. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this truth of who you are, what you've done for us, and how you already believe that we are worthy. God, what a great gift that you have shown us this favor. God, help us to live into that favor. Help us to, <laughs> help us to, you know what? Help us to rejoice in that favor that you have shown us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.